Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. Today, we're going to be discussing the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Bill, which is due to be implemented into UK law by the end of this month. My name is Philip Hertz, and I'm a partner and the Global Head of Restructuring and Insolvency at Clifford Chance, based in London. I'm joined by my fellow Restructuring and Insolvency partner from London, Melissa Coakley. So, Melissa, shall we start off with a bit of background behind this new piece of legislation and why it's important for UK businesses? I should start off by saying that this new bill represents the most significant reform of UK insolvency law for 30 years. The new bill was published on the 20th of May 2020, but in reality has been in the works for some time now. Its introduction has been accelerated due to the impact of COVID-19 on the UK marketplace to try to ensure that UK businesses have access to the new provisions during the post-crisis recovery period. The bill is currently working its way through the legislative process and is expected to enter into law by the end of this month. There have already been some amendments to the bill, and it's expected there may be a few more before the final version comes into effect. So listeners should please bear that in mind when listening to this podcast. For that reason, we've sought to focus on the key provisions that are not expected to change. Once the law does come into force, the changes will be effective immediately, and the new procedures will be available to companies immediately. So what does this new bill do? It amends UK insolvency and companies law with a variety of temporary and permanent additions and amendments to the existing regime. We can't cover all of the changes in this podcast, but we will seek to summarise some of what we see as the key features. In terms of the temporary additions, in line with other jurisdictions, some additional protections for directors have been included during the key stages of the pandemic with retrospective effect and also for COVID-19 affected companies faced with winding up petitions. With respect to the permanent additions, there are three main changes. These are the introduction of a new Part 26A compromise procedure, a new statutory moratorium procedure, and a prohibition against termination of supply contracts on insolvency, or ipso facto clauses. Philip, before we dive into the detail, it might be helpful to discuss why it seems these changes were needed. Yeah, sure. Well, look, simply put, the changes have been made in order to broaden out the UK restructuring toolkit in some key areas. This is especially important against the backdrop of legislative reform going on across Europe currently, particularly when considered in a post-Brexit context. Although we already have the English scheme, which offers a fantastic restructuring tool, which vast numbers of English and non-English companies have utilised and continue to utilise, it will seem as important from an economic policy perspective to ensure that the UK offers an equivalent menu of flexible debtor-in-possession restructuring procedures to the other best-in-class processes in the US and across Europe. As Melissa mentioned, these changes have been under discussion for some time, almost as long as I can remember, but the introduction of the legislation has been accelerated due to the COVID-19 pandemic to try to help struggling businesses in the recovery phase. With that in mind, it's perhaps worth underlining that overall the changes are seen as debtor-friendly and broadly in line from a philosophical standpoint with the general move within established legal systems towards facilitating rescue, recovery, and rehabilitation of distressed debtors. So in terms of the main contents of the bill, shall we briefly walk through the permanent changes first? Yes, let's start with the new Part 26A compromise procedure. I think it's fair to say that of the key three key permanent changes, the new Part 26A procedure is of most immediate relevance to financial investors and lenders to UK businesses. That's not to say the new moratorium or the prohibition 
of termination of supply contracts on insolvency are not significant, but they both have some limits and carve-outs to their application or potential impact in restructurings of large capital structures. So let's start with the most significant change first, the new compromise procedure or Part 26A process. Before I start, I should say this procedure can sometimes be commonly referred to as the restructuring plan, the new compromise or arrangement procedure, or the Part 26A compromise process. This is because the title of the procedure has changed since the government first started consulting on changes to the new law, but I wanted to reassure listeners that despite the different and slightly confusing terminology, it is all the same procedure. So the new Part 26A procedure is a new flexible debtor in possession compromise procedure contained in the Companies Act. It's not technically an insolvency procedure. It's procedurally very similar to an English scheme with a couple of key differences. So running through the similarities to a scheme to start with, it's a highly flexible statutory procedure which can be used where a company wishes to propose a compromise or arrangement with its creditors or members or any class of them. In the same way as for a scheme, there's no limit as to what a compromise or arrangement could mean in this context. For example, it could be a complicated debt to equity swap, a corporate reorganization, or it could be a simple maturity amendment or deferral, a standstill or a combination of various different components. Like the scheme, the process doesn't include a moratorium unless it's used in conjunction with the new moratorium procedure or as part of the administration process. Similar to schemes in that it doesn't need to cover all of a company's debts, it could be used by most types of companies, including listed companies and partnerships, and also importantly, it can apply to overseas incorporated companies as long as they have a sufficient connection to England, such as English law governed contracts, and also jurisdiction can be established if needed in the same way as the schemes, such as changing governing law to English or incorporating a new English co-op legal. In terms of the key differences between this new procedure and schemes, the first key difference to a scheme, and schemes can be used for solvent or insolvent companies, is that although this is not technically an insolvency process, as it's contained in companies legislation, for this process to be utilised, the company must be in financial difficulty or likely to encounter financial difficulty, which may affect its ability to continue as a going concern in order to apply to court to use the process. However, there's no guidance as to what financial difficulties actually means in this context, although we think in practice this won't be a high bar. The purpose of the plan must be to eliminate, reduce, prevent or mitigate the effects of those financial difficulties. The second difference is, taking inspiration from US Chapter 11, the procedure includes cross-class cram-down. In a scheme, in contrast, the relevant voting majority of each class is needed to approve the scheme. Here, 75% of only one voting class could be enough to approve the compromise, even if all other classes reject the plan, which means in theory, a junior creditor class could bind dissenting senior classes. For cross-class cram-down to be used to bind dissenting classes, there are three elements that must be satisfied. First, there must be one in-the-money approving class, which will receive a payment or have a genuine economic interest in the most likely alternative to the plan, such as liquidation. Second, the court must be satisfied that none of the members of the dissenting class or classes will be worse off than under a relevant alternative, which is whatever the court considers most likely to occur in relation to the company if the plan were not sanctioned, 
So again, this will usually be a liquidating comparator, i.e. but for the compromise, what position would the creditor be in? We assume in practice this means usual creditor priorities will be protected. And third, the court will need to find the compromise is fair and reasonable. Where the relevant majorities of each class have voted in favour, we think it's unlikely the court will seek to substitute its views for those of the creditors. Generally speaking, the court considers the creditors the best judges of their own commercial interests. But where cross-class crown-down is used, we think it's likely to bring greater judicial scrutiny. So to reiterate, this means in theory, unsecured creditors could crown down secured creditors, albeit subject to the protections referred to above. I'd be interested in any comments you have, Philip, in relation to the new procedure and any complications you can foresee with its use in practice. Well, look, generally speaking, I think we think that the introduction of this new compromise process is a welcome development and will increase the options available to a distressed company. And that's never a bad thing. In terms of the positives associated with the new process, I think there are four. First, it should create more flexibility to deal with classes of holdout creditors and facilitate vertical as well as horizontal cram down where applicable. Secondly, it's very similar to schemes, which are a tried and tested route. And in our view, the courts will be very well equipped to deal with this new procedure, even where it does get a bit contentious. Thirdly, it represents the introduction of a more Chapter 11-style debtor-in-possession rescue procedure, which was previously missing from the English toolkit. Finally, European jurisdictions are planning to introduce similar processes. I think the Dutch are um, pretty much already there or very close to it. So that will ensure this type of process is also available in England post-Brexit. But there are a number of concerns also in the market around the new process. We expect the establishment of the relevant alternative in a cross-class cram-down scenario could be a source of significant disagreement in practice, as this will be subject to valuation evidence and could be particularly contentious where some creditors are close to the line in terms of where the value breaks in the capital structure. To put this in context, valuations are likely to be used in the context of identifying those creditors who have a genuine economic interest in the company, also in the comparison of a relevant alternative in the context of a cram down, and finally confirming whether in the context of a contended cross-class cram down, the class or classes voting in favour would be out of the money and would otherwise lack any genuine economic interest in the comparator scenario. Given that these are key issues, we expect valuations to be a subject of challenge in relevant cases. Lenders have also expressed concerns about the ability of the plan to disrupt statutory creditor priorities by providing a scenario where junior creditors could cram up senior creditors. We would expect that situations where that can happen in practice, especially where security is involved, will be reasonably limited for a number of practical reasons. In addition, there are three main protections for creditors against being unfairly prejudiced. First, where a class of creditors rejects the compromise, the court must be satisfied that the dissenting creditors would be better off in the compromise than under a relevant alternative. In this context, the relevant alternative is usually liquidation, meaning statutory priorities will be respected. Second, the creditors pushing through the cross-class cram-down must satisfy the court that they would have a genuine economic interest in the relevant alternative. In other words, they're not out of the money to ensure that they are genuinely interested in the success of the company. Finally, the court retains discretion over whether or not to sanction a compromise procedure. 
as has been established in the context of schemes of arrangement, the courts will properly scrutinise a compromise before sanctioning it. Where a cross-class cram-down will occur, the court is likely to increase its level of scrutiny of the compromise. Now, shall we move on to discuss the other key permanent features of the new law? Melissa, please could you outline the new moratorium process and the circumstances in which we see this process being used? Thank you, Philip. So a common criticism of schemes has been that there's no moratorium available to companies proposing them, meaning that where a company wants to propose a scheme, but in the preparation or negotiation stages needs protection from hostile creditor action that it cannot achieve via contractual standstill or lockup agreement, it has to go into administration to obtain the benefit of a moratorium. Similarly, we do not have in this jurisdiction a standalone, relatively informal process for a company to obtain breathing space in order to assess its options, such as seen in other jurisdictions like France, for example. To address this, a new standalone moratorium has been introduced, which is a debtor in possession process which could be used by companies in financial difficulties as the precursor to either a consensual restructuring, a scheme or use of the new compromise procedure, and where companies can show it would be likely the moratorium would facilitate the company being rescued as a going concern. The idea is for there to be an easy to apply for moratorium, which companies can use to prevent security enforcement or the appointment of insolvency office holders, such as administrators or administrative receivers, whilst they try to negotiate a restructuring and also for there to be a payment holiday for certain debts during that moratorium, which the company can benefit from. Procedurally, the way it works is the directors of a company can file documents with the court and can benefit from a moratorium for an initial period of 20 business days without a court hearing, and which can be extended for a further 20 business days without creditor consent or up to a year or more with creditor consent. There's also a court process for certain companies to access the moratorium. For example, overseas companies need a hearing before they can get the benefit of a moratorium. The jurisdictional threshold for foreign companies is very low, inspired by the scheme approach we mentioned earlier. In addition, in terms of procedural aspects, an insolvency practitioner needs to agree to act as the monitor of the process and needs to certify that in their view, it's likely that a moratorium would result in the company being rescued as a going concern. During the moratorium, the directors stay in control of the company. The company can't be placed into insolvency proceedings unless the directors themselves apply. So there can be no appointment of an administrator or administrative receiver whilst the moratorium is on foot. In terms of how this affects creditors, the effect is broadly the same as for an administration moratorium. So whilst the moratorium is in place, there can be no security enforcement except for financial collateral no forfeiture or exercise of rights of re-entry by landlords, and no continuation or commencement of court action against the company without court permission. One key difference is that the standalone moratorium prevents crystallisation of floating charges as currently drafted. In line with the administration moratorium, there is no restriction on the exercise of ordinary contractual rights, so the interim moratorium does not prevent, for example, exercise of rights to draw stop, exercise of set-off rights or acceleration, or exercise of rights of early termination under hedging agreements. An exception to this is the exercise of insolvency-linked termination provisions in contracts for goods and services, but we'll come on to that later, although there are wide exceptions to this too. However, it's really important to note that there are a range of carve-outs from the moratorium, which restrict eligibility from using the process, as well as limiting the liabilities that can be subject to the payment holiday, for example, 
The moratorium is not applicable to securitization companies, parties to capital market arrangements, which in broad terms means companies with a secured or guaranteed bond of at least £10 million, public-private partnership project companies, and regulated entities or companies that have used an insolvency procedure within the previous 12 months are all excluded. The legislation prescribes that during the moratorium, the company must continue to make certain payments during the moratorium, such as debts and liabilities under financial services contracts or instruments, and this is very broad and captures not just loans, but a range of financial contracts, such as financial leasing, guarantees, securities contracts, and derivatives. The company must also pay the monitor's remuneration and expenses. It must make payments for goods and services supplied during the moratorium. It must pay rent falling due during the moratorium and must also pay wages, salary, redundancy payments, contributions to occupational pension schemes. If the company doesn't pay these debts during the process, then the monitor has to terminate the moratorium early. So, Philip, in your view, what's the practical effect of the various carve-outs from the payment holiday and the relatively restrictive eligibility criteria? Well, I think the combination of the various exclusions means that in its current form, the moratorium is most likely to be used by either companies that enter the process with clear advanced consensus from their key financial creditors, or outside of that scenario, the moratorium may be most likely to be used by SMEs or companies which have alternative financing arrangements in place that don't fall within the various exclusions. It goes without saying that these factors may create some natural limiting factors on the likelihood of take-up of the process by large leveraged businesses. It also may in practice limit the pool of accountancy firms willing to take monitor appointments outside of these circumstances. One of the key reasons that the moratorium may not be advisable without advanced material financial credit buying is because whilst security enforcement is prevented, there are some payments which will be subject to a payment holiday. The company will still need to make all scheduled payments under its financing arrangements, unless otherwise agreed by those creditors. And if it misses a payment, the moratorium will come to an end. There's also nothing stopping lenders accelerating loans during the process, again, which would simply bring the moratorium to an end. The legislation also currently provides that any debts that fall due during the moratorium process and which are unpaid, and which would include any accelerated amounts, then gain super priority status over other debts, apart from debts subject to fixed security, if the moratorium fails and the company enters into an insolvency. Those parties also gain a veto over any subsequent scheme or compromise procedure that is proposed within 12 weeks of the moratorium terminating. These provisions have attracted some negative commentary within legal circles as potentially creating a platform for theoretical, undesirable creditor behaviour where action is taken to pull down a moratorium purely to obtain an advantageous position in any subsequent insolvency or restructuring process. It is possible for these reasons that these provisions may end up being removed from the final form of legislation. If they're not removed, we expect creditors in leverage deals to re-examine intercreditor and turnover provisions to ensure they're robust enough to survive a failed moratorium process in order to preserve the contractually agreed intercreditor position upon insolvency. What is less clear is the steps that could be taken to avoid creditors gaining a veto in any later scheme or compromise process. This may end up being a reason for creditors not agreeing to the use of the moratorium in the first place. So is this a real missed opportunity then? Well, yes and no. 
One has to remember that the standalone moratorium is designed for viable companies experience financial turbulence rather than insolvent companies or companies in significant distress. Therefore, in terms of viable companies wanting to use the procedure, we consider it appropriate that they continue to make scheduled debt payments during the moratorium. We would also consider it appropriate that creditors retain their usual contractual rights and protections during the process to be exercised if consensus around the proposal breaks down. It may seem stark that financial creditors can essentially bring a moratorium to an end at any time via acceleration, but equally this goes to the question around the day one viability of the process, which will need to be demonstrable before a monitor can provide an opinion to this effect to support the entry into the process in the first place. If there's a day one likelihood that material creditors may accelerate during the moratorium period, it is highly unlikely that the monitor can accept the role. Equally, if acceleration is likely, then the process is by definition not viable. It's a non-starter. Acceleration should therefore only be foreseeable when matters have taken a wrong or unexpected turn during the moratorium period, and it is, in our view, appropriate for creditors to retain that option in the downside. In any case, in our experience, the situations where viable companies can't achieve the comfort or payment deferrals they need from creditors contractually prior to launching a compromise process, such as a scheme, are relatively rare, meaning the lack of moratorium has not typically been an insurmountable issue. For cases where a company is perhaps in more advanced distress or where it's not able to reach agreement with one or more strategic creditors and needs a moratorium, it is true that this new standalone moratorium is unlikely to be the answer due to the various carve-outs. However, as we've mentioned before, the standalone moratorium was not designed with that scenario in mind. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we may see more of the surge of companies that do find themselves in a situation of urgent distress. For those companies, the administration moratorium is likely more appropriate. It may be that we see more light touch or rescue administrations using provisions that already in, exist in the current insolvency legislation, where directors continue to run the business with the consent of the administrator, but with the benefit of the administration moratorium to create breathing space. This can then be followed by a restructuring, which could, for example, be achieved via a scheme, CVA or the new compromise procedure or a combination, all within the protective cloak of the moratorium. Noting also that an administration moratorium does not require scheduled debt payments to continue to be made. We therefore think that the restructuring toolkit already contains a potential solution for companies most in need of a moratorium, although historically the process has a negative association. But post-COVID, we may see more frequent use of administration as a rescue process. Turning finally to the third key permanent change introduced by the bill, the new so-called ipso facto rules which invalidates contractual provisions that terminate supply contracts due to insolvency proceedings. Melissa, please can you provide a summary of the highlights? Sure. So in terms of background, the UK is one of only a handful of jurisdictions that historically have not sought to prevent the termination of certain types of contracts upon insolvency. The new rules seek to bring the UK into line with other jurisdictions in this respect, again from a perspective of the promotion of a rescue culture, where companies have the opportunity to emerge from restructuring or insolvency procedures as a going concern. Previously in the UK, only a narrow category of essential suppliers, such as IT platforms and utility providers, were subject to a prohibition on insolvency-linked termination. The new law seeks to stop suppliers of goods and services being able to terminate contracts due to the counterparty going into a formal insolvency process, which includes a moratorium, administration, administrative receivership, CVA, liquidation, provisional liquidation, plus, interestingly, also the new restructuring plan process, even though this isn't a formal insolvency proceeding. 
This is intended to capture contracts for supply of goods or services only. It's not intended to capture financial contracts. So it's most relevant where a company has entered into administration or has filed for the standalone moratorium and wants to stop its day-to-day -day trading or commercial contractual counterparties from terminating contracts and holding the business to ransom. Specifically, the new provision makes relevant termination provisions invalid, provides that the supplier can apply to court to avoid being caught by the prohibition if it can show continuation of the contract reports the supplier hardship. It provides that the supplier can't demand ransom payments or change payment terms to demand payment up front, and also can't seek to rely on past breaches, such as payment arrears, to withhold future supply. However, goods and services are not defined under the legislation, although the policy underpinning the provision is founded on facilitating ongoing trade and expressed as such in the explanatory notes to the bill. But there are wide exemptions in terms of the types of services that are caught by the prohibition on termination, including financial services and lending, and also wide exclusions for certain types of entities. So these provisions should generally not be of concern to financial investors or lenders. Specifically, the new law prescribes a long list of excluded suppliers who cannot be subject to these provisions, such as suppliers of financial services, so insurers, banks, investment banks, investment firms, payment institutions, operators of payment systems or payment infrastructure providers, investment exchanges, clearing houses, securitization companies, and an entity that's engaged in activities of all of the above nature outside of the UK. The new law also prescribes a wide range of excluded contracts that cannot be subject to these provisions, such as financial contracts and contracts related to financing transactions, capital markets arrangements, derivatives, plus any potential set-off or netting arrangements as defined under the Banking Act 2009. Contracts forming part of public-private partnership arrangements will also be exempt. So we have covered the three key permanent changes to be implemented by the bill. Shall we quickly run through the temporary provisions which would also be introduced specifically as a reaction to the COVID-19 crisis? Yes, there are two key temporary provisions to be introduced which relate to a relaxation of the wrongful trading regime for directors and also to a temporary stay on the ability for creditors to present winding up petitions in relation to companies which are experiencing COVID-19 attributable distress. Broadly speaking, these measures have retrospective effect applying from the beginning of the crisis. So 1st of March for wrongful trading and the 27th of April for winding up and will last until the end of June or one month after the new law is introduced, whichever is later. So of significance to directors of UK companies is the relaxation of the wrongful trading provisions, which gives some comfort to directors incurring new debt, including the government funding on offer or making the decision to continue to trade during the COVID-19 pandemic, despite uncertainties as to how long the pandemic will last for. Under the current law, an offensive wrongful trading can make a director personally liable if he or she incurs debt or continues to trade in circumstances of financial instability, where there is no reasonable prospect of the company surviving as a going concern, and he or she does not take steps to limit credit exposure. During COVID-19, reasonable prospects of survival are almost impossible to determine, for example, when the shape of the recovery curve is completely uncertain hence this intervention by the government. However, it's important to note that whilst helpful from a company and a director perspective, this is certainly not a get-out-of-jail-free card for directors. A claim can still be brought on the basis of wrongful trading, 
but for a limited period from the 1st of March until one month after the law is introduced, the court is to assume that the director is not responsible for any worsening of the company's financial position during that time. It should also be noted that there are still a number of statutory and common law rules around directors' duties in the zone of insolvency that have not been disapplied. Note that there are exclusions. Directors of financial institutions can't benefit from this relaxation around the wrongful trading rules, and neither can parties to capital markets arrangements, so companies with a secured or guaranteed bond, and public-private partnership project companies, firms carrying out regulated activities under FISMA, building societies, friendly societies, and credit unions. So the second temporary change in relation to companies in summary, up to the later of the end of June or one month after the bill comes into effect, if a company fails to pay its debts, a winding up petition against a company, or put another way, an application to demand the company goes into liquidation, can't be served by a creditor against a company unless the creditor can prove COVID-19 has not had a financial impact on the company. So that wraps up our summary of the new permanent and temporary amendments to the UK restructuring and insolvency law to be introduced when the bill passes into law. Melissa, any concluding thoughts? Yes, I think it's important to re-emphasise that the bill has been subject to significant amendments already and further amendments may also be made before the bill is finalised and entered into law at the end of June. So it's a case of watch this space. Overall, the new restructuring plan is a very interesting development and potentially the most significant change. We do not see it replacing the English scheme, but in complex restructuring scenarios where obtaining consensus within each different class of creditor is difficult, we think it could add a really useful additional new dimension. We're planning to hold a perspective talk towards the end of June once the law has been finalised to discuss more detailed analysis around the new procedures and amendments and market or sector impact more broadly. So please do look out for that. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.